Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. this or not, but count this as your memo. Guys, pay attention. Um, this coming Friday is indeed Valentine's Day. Okay? Just so that you are aware, those of you who haven't thought through that, some of you may decide you're just not going to do anything. That's okay too. There's nothing that says you have to, but your wife may be expecting something. Or maybe it's reversed in your household. And your husband is expecting something and you don't know that yet. So, Maybe this is, a, this is an opportunity for communication this week. That's a good thing. Uh, but if nothing else, you have been told Sunday, so you have a jump start on this. And I was actually, if you, if, you, if you couldn't figure out, we actually planned it this way so that the week of Valentine's Day, we're talking about the attribute of God, which is love. Easy to remember, right? And I was reading through because... Occasionally, I like to start with something just to lighten the mood as far as a story or something that gets you laughing. Usually, it's something that made me laugh, so it's okay if you don't find it funny. But I I enjoy laughing at these things. And in fact, a little-known fact about me, when I was four years old um, and someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I uh, said I wanted to be a pastor so I could stand on stage and everyone would laugh at my jokes. And so, no pressure, but this is like life-transforming for me. It was prophesied when I was four years old. Anyway, I'm kidding. But I I did read this story about a a woman who woke up one morning, and she turned to her husband, and she said, Honey, I just had a dream that you bought me a new gold necklace. What do you think it means? And he answered, I don't know, but Valentine's Day is coming soon. Then you'll know. A few nights later, she again awoke having a dream, and and she said, this time I dreamed you gave me a pearl necklace. What do you think it means? And her husband replied, you'll know on Valentine's Day. The morning of Valentine's Day, she again woke up telling him about her dream. This time, I dreamed that you bought me a diamond necklace. What do you think it means? Honey, be patient, he said. You'll know tonight. That evening, the husband came home with a package, gave it to his wife. Delighted, she opened it and found a book titled, The Meaning of Dreams. (laughs) So, he did follow through. Anyway, we're talking today about love, specifically as an attribute of God. And now, while... A story like that is funny. It does demonstrate something in terms of introducing this concept. And it introduces for many of us, and a week like this intros this in a way where we identify what we tend to associate love with. And we tend to associate it with the giving of gifts or Maybe even a special day in the year where you're supposed to celebrate that. Or maybe we identify it with how someone treats us day after day, time after time. But what I want to challenge you with this morning 
is the concept that biblically we are called to reflect a love that God himself has. And therefore, if we don't define our very concept of love coming from God himself, we threaten the very notion that what we're doing is not actually biblically what love is supposed to be. And so this morning, I want you to think about that in your own minds and process, how would you define love right now? What does it look like? What brings it about? How do you know what love is versus other things? And we're going to look specifically today at 1 John chapter 4, because this is a passage in Scripture that approaches love from an angle many of us, I believe, don't. And I want us to read there together. We're going to be in 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. And I'm going to have you, I know you just sat down, but I'm going to have you stand as we honor God's word and read this text. And then we're going to pray and ask God to reveal to us who he is according to scripture. In verse 7 of 1 John 4, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment... Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Heavenly Father, as we approach this today, it's very clear what this passage is speaking about. So I pray that you would tear down any presuppositions in our own minds about what this is and reveal to us what this looks like according to you and your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the reality is... When we come to a passage like this, it's very evident what the focal point of this is. And that is love. Everyone say love. 
The word is used consistently throughout this text. And so immediately it should spark our interest and go, oh, this is an important concept here. Now, I want to preface this and say there's a lot in this passage that you may look at and go, ooh, are we going to cover all of this today? No, we're not. Okay. We, we don't have time to cover all of this. I would challenge you to read through this again after today. Take some notes, study this, ask some questions, and evaluate it in light of where you're at right now. But today in particular, in continuation with our series of talks focusing on who God is, I want to focus on two verses here primarily where there's three words used. God is love. God is love. And in fact, if you've got your own Bible and you take notes in your Bible, I want to challenge you to either underline or box that in your Bible. It shows up two times in this section we just read. Once in verse 8, verse 8, and then another in verse 16. And this is, this is profound because everything else in this text flows out of an understanding that the very definition of what love is resides in God himself. Now, how we're going to approach this today is in light of the statement, biblically, God is love, I want us to observe three specific realities. And these realities fly in the face of how we as humans would define love amongst each other, amongst even our relationship with God. And my prayer is, is that as we walk through this, you will start to see that the very definition that we tend to hold of what love is, is defined largely by who, what we think love is rather than who God is. Now understand that I said something there, not merely how God loves, but who God is. And what I hope is accomplished today is as you start to understand who God is, it starts to shape and shift what these things look like lived out in our own lives. So the first observation when we think about the reality that God is love is that God is, God's love is not emotionally impassioned. God's love is not emotionally impassioned. So in contrast with our own human definition of love outside of who God is, the love of God is not swayed by circumstances. Now, time after time, we might see headlines or phrases that go something like this. Such and such celebrity falls out of love with such and such celebrity. How many of you have seen those or heard those before? It's all over the place. And in fact, it becomes an almost normal conversation piece. Oh, did you hear so-and-so is no longer with so-and-so? And we, we get on this gossip train so quickly, church. And this is not something that just happens outside the church. Can I, can I say that to you? We've got to be really cautious of these things. But at the core, we, we hear these things. 
And we see even, even dramas that portray a sense of betrayal that drives a previously quote-unquote in-love couple to absolutely despise each other. Some of you may have personally experienced this in your own lives. Where you were in a place where you thought this person loved you and cared about you and you were absolutely abandoned and broken and hurt. And what you may not realize in the midst of that is your very, when that happens, our very definition of what love is goes into the air and we go, what, what is it actually? What does this really look like? And we begin to search for that in places where we're not going to find it. And we might even search for it in a place of someone else to fill that void. And so we're longing for this and we're seeking it out and we're yearning for it and we're not finding it. Now, what you are seeing or what I'm trying to identify with you is these are impassioned responses that are commonly driven by emotion. Everyone say emotion. Now, I want to make a statement. Emotions are not bad. Emotions are not bad. In fact, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say emotions are not bad. Now, emotions have the potential to become bad when they become the controlling source of our life. When that becomes the only thing we dwell on is how I feel and my emotions, we can all identify that there is an ebb and flow that takes place here where on this day, I'm, I'm emotionally pretty well. And on this day, I'm just emotionally not. And can I just say, that's okay. You, you don't need to be emotionally okay all the time. And I want you to be heard and seen because you're human. I am not emotionally okay all the time. None of us are. And if we're not emotionally okay all the time and we're defining our very concept of love by how we feel or by our passions, is that not by default going to lead us astray? We see these impassioned responses in our own life when our children act up or someone cuts us off in traffic or a coworker drops the ball leaving you with extra work. Our responses to these events are driven by feelings of emotion and passion that result in an outward expression as such. And 1 John 4 makes the clear statement that God is love. Everyone say that. One, two, three. Not merely, listen to this, not merely that he shows love, but that it resides in his being. What we'll find out later on in this message is that you can't separate his love from his other attributes. You can't put this over here and expect all of this to, to, to be separate or fragmented. It's, it, you can't do that because this is, this is intricately a part of who God is and who He's said He is. Because the God of the universe, His love is not impassioned. Listen to this. It provides a security that we do not find in earthly relationships. A grounding that is rooted in his character, not whether or not he has had enough coffee this morning. 
Some of you laugh, but you know this is a reality, okay? The danger is taking this concept and formulating our own human perception of what love should look like coming from God. Do you catch that? Rather than seeing it as residing in who he is, the danger here is for us to say, in light of my own human perception of what love should look like, according to my ideas, I'm going I'm to proclaim this is what God's love should look like. And that's how we end up as churches fragmented by this concept of what does love really look like? Well, when it's defined in relative terms, and we say, well, love looks like this to me. Well, yes, because that's what you're passionate about. But love looks like this to me. Well, that's different than that. Well, yeah, it is, because you're different people and you're human. But if we stop and we step back and we sit in this reality that God is love, then we need to also step back and go, whoa, all of the human definitions that I have used to clarify this are wrong. I need to start seeing this through a lens of who God is first. God's love is not emotionally impassioned. He's not just going to respond out of sudden emotional shifts or changes. There's security in that. Secondly, God's love is not driven by who we are. God's love is not driven by who we are. So often... Our concept of love revolves around someone deserving to be loved. This very concept drives our ideas of love to imply that someone who does not fall in love with everything that I am could not possibly truly be demonstrating love to me. But where is that definition residing once again? D.A. Carson quoted this. He said, God does not fall in love with the elect. He does not fall in love with us. He sets his affections on us. The reality is we as humans wrestle with a love that is not driven by who someone is. We wrestle with that. Because it defines how we view people and who we decide to quote-unquote love. That is to say that we cannot ever consider... This is hard. We cannot ever consider what God is doing and say that He is not being loving. Do you grasp that? How can, how can we state that? Because Scripture says God is love. It's a part of who He is. And so if we come to something and say, God, you are not being loving. Such a statement is the same as someone asserting that you are not being human. We can't, we can't do that. Why can't we do that? Because by nature, you are human beings. For me to look at each of you and say, you are not human. We would scoff at the idea. And yet, so often we look at God and we say, God, you are not loving. And according to 1 John 4, 
that very concept is driven by what? It's driven by my own emotions, by my own passions, and my own definition of what love is. You see where we have to deconstruct this and we have to start evaluating how do I define love based on not how I feel, but who God is. Now, this rightly introduces our third and possibly most important point as we begin to understand the kind of love revealed by God while also moving towards a better understanding of the application in our passage. And that's that God's love cannot be separated from His other attributes. Everyone say, God is love. A common response to the person of God as we read Scripture is to take pieces of God's character that we like and create a God in our own image. This is a temptation everyone deals with. Every single one of us. I deal with this. That is why it's so important that we come back to a center on God's word and say, who does the Bible say that he is? What does the Bible say I'm supposed to be or that I'm supposed to do? Because when we leave it to our own perspective, what we end up with is relativism. Everyone say relativism. The simple concept of that is what is relative to you is not relative to me. In other words, you can believe whatever you want and we can still function and be brothers together. While you can still be with people, I'm not disputing that, we cannot accept a relativist, relativism viewpoint and be honed into Scripture. Okay? Now, I want to clarify that and say there are some major points of doctrine and there are some others that we just don't know a lot about and cause us to speculate. I'm not speaking about speculation, all right? I'm speaking about when we come to a passage like 1 John 4 where it says God is love. We cannot come to this from a relativism viewpoint and say, well, what love is is relative to you, but it's different to me. We can't do that. Because by very definition, God defines what love is, not you or I. This is His perspective. His nature defines what this is. Now, a way uh, to illustrate this. So, how many of you love building Legos? Or used to love building Legos? I still like building Legos. And I have to say that I'm very much looking forward to the day when my kids enjoy building Legos. Now, I say, maybe they won't, okay? Maybe they won't, but I'm going to try really hard. And I was completely that kid who would get a Lego set for Christmas Eve, and by Christmas morning, I had already built it, all right? I just loved doing this. But one of the cool things about Legos is it comes in a box, and you see the picture of what you can build with this box, but you're not limited to, what's in, to, to what the picture is, right? I can make all kinds of modifications or I can take the same pieces and build something completely different with the same pieces in which the box shows this is what it's supposed to be. God is not a box of Legos. You can't open the Bible and take the pieces you want and create a God that you like. 
we have to look at the entirety of who God is. And part of that that is so challenging is because when we look at God's love, we want to separate that and say, okay, well, I'm going to take the, the bricks of the loving God out of the New Testament and bits and pieces, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build myself a model fashioned after and say, look at the shrine I've made, this God of love. And then someone comes up to us and says, how do you reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New? And we go, well, God is love. Look at him. But what we don't say in that same statement is, look at this God of love that I've created in my own image. We can't do that. God is the only one who gets to determine who God is. Not you or I. And God's revealed himself. Everything that we need to know about God, he's revealed to us in Scripture. Church, this is why it's so important that we open our Bibles. Because otherwise, you're just taking bricks and creating something of your own making. You cannot, listen, we've talked about the, these attributes of God. You cannot separate God's love from his holiness. What does that mean? Well, it means that if God is ultimately holy... What can he not allow in his presence? Sin. Everyone say sin. So how do you reconcile a God of love with a God who's holy? You, here's another one. You cannot separate God's love from God's judgment or being just. And based in scripture, we know that what's due for our sin? What's due? Everyone say death. How do we reconcile a God of love with a God who is just and who is judge? How do we reconcile these things? You cannot separate them. Now, the amazing thing about Scripture is it doesn't leave us hanging. And the application point is simply this. If we really claim to be growing in our knowledge of God, then our love should begin to look more like His. Now, this is where the logical question comes in. What does His love look like? And this is where the rest of this chapter emphasizes this. Look at verse 9 of 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In other words, in this, the love of God was revealed. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the substitute for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So I'm going to ask you these questions. Do you see yourself as deserving the love of God? With that love being rooted in total acceptance of who you are. Or do you understand the love of God through the perspective of a holy God who hates sin of which you are completely tainted by? 
we have to stop allowing the driving force of our love to be rooted in what people are like. Love your spouse regardless of how they act today. Regardless of whether you feel impassioned to love them or not. Love the difficult people in your life. Not in a passive-aggressive way to make them feel bad about who they are, but in a sincere outpouring of our understanding of who God is. A God who is, by definition, love. Stop separating. We've got to stop separating God's love from these other attributes and actually wrestle with the question, how do we reconcile the wrath of God with His love? Next time that you mess up, take time to get on your knees and humble yourself and confess your sin. Rather than jumping right to His love and forgiveness, turning a blind eye to the fact that you deserve death, not grace. See, this transforms how we define this very thing. Because rather than me deserving love from God for who I am, it's quite the opposite. And the reason I have need for a Savior is because I'm incapable of placing myself in any way, shape, or form to where I can stand before a holy God and say, Oh, hey God, look at all this stuff I did. You should love me. And instead God says, but I see your sin. I see your sin. And I see your sin. And God knew that. And so he sent his son. And Jesus died. So that for those who are in Christ, when they stand before a holy God, God goes, I see your sin's been covered. It's been paid for. That's why I sent my son. And when we define love in any other way, outside of the framework of God, church, we defame and we tear down the very gospel we claim to hold to. Love has got to start looking a lot less like what we've created in our minds and a lot more like the God of the Bible if we ever want to get back to where God has called us to be. Now, in closing, I want to read this quote to you. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up as I read this. And before I read this, I just want to challenge you. There is a broad list of application in the rest of 1 John 4. And that's why I wanted to preface at the beginning. We're not going to go exhaustively through this section of 1 John because there's so much there. And as much as I would love to just continue talking with you about this for another three or four hours, I, I know many of you would... Stop paying attention after another 30 minutes. It's okay. But I want to challenge you not to stop here, okay? Go back, open to 1 John 4 this week. Challenge yourself. If you haven't 
if you don't have a specific plan you're following this week to get into God's word, just commit to saying every day this week I'm going to open up and read this section of 1 John 4, and I'm going to wrestle with these things. Because it talks about abiding. If we're going to actually root ourselves into who God is, then we have to understand what it means to love. If we're not loving, then we don't abide in God. It, it makes that contrast. Wrestle with this stuff. But to sum up and provide clarity, clarity to you today, I want to read this excerpt out of a, out of a book that I, I read this week because I was wrestling with these things so much. And the book, if you wanted to look it up, is called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by D.A. Carson. And he just wrestles with a lot of these realities. But this is what he says. says, we may gain clarity by an example. Picture Charles and Susan walking down a beach hand in hand at the end of the academic year. The pressure of the semester has dissipated in the warm evening breeze. They've kicked off their sandals and the wet sand squishes between their toes. Some of you are already going, oh, that sounds so nice. Charles turns to Susan, gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes and says, Susan, I love you. I really do. What does he mean? Well, in this day and age, he may mean nothing more than that he feels like testosterone on legs and wants to go to bed with her forthwith. But if we assume he has even a modicum of decency, let alone Christian virtue, the least he means is something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile plexes me from 50 yards, your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. What he most certainly does not mean is something like this. Susan, quite frankly, you have such a bad case of halitosis, it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous, you belong in the cartoons. Your hair is so greasy, it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed, you make a camel look elegant. Your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan look like wimps, but I love you. So now, God comes to us and says, I love you. What does he mean? Does he mean something like this? You mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. That, after all, is pretty close to one, what some therapeutic approaches to the love of God spell out. We must be pretty wonderful because God loves us. And dear old God is pretty vulnerable finding himself in a dreadful state unless we say, say yes. Suddenly, serious Christians unite and rightly cry, bring back impassibility. When he says he loves us, does not God rather mean something like the following? Morally speaking, you are the people of the halitosis, the bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personality. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly. But I love you anyway. Not because you are attractive, but because it is my nature to love. Church, may we challenge ourselves to shift our view of what love really looks like and define it 
by the very nature of the one who is himself love. Heavenly Father, as we are challenged with this, may it increase our meditation and thinking upon these things. May these realities challenge our thoughts and our theology. Lord, may this become a part of who we are, not just individually, but more importantly as the church, as the body of Christ, that we would be known for our love, but not a love is defined by culture, not as a love that's defined by how we feel or emotions, but a love that is simply defined by the very giving of your Son, the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. That we would see ourselves as the sinful beings we are, not deserving your love, not deserving your affections, and yet the recipients of your grace and your mercy bestowed to us through Jesus. And I want to pause and emphasize, if you're here today and you go, I want to experience, I want to know this kind of love, I want to encourage you and say right now, if you see and recognize the patterns of sin in your life and you're longing for freedom in that and you see a distortion of what should be. I want you to consider that God gave His Son for you. God gave His Son because He knew you would not be able to do this on your own. He knew that there was no way that you would stand in His presence apart from being justified when you stand before the only righteous judge Himself. And so Jesus came and he died and he fulfilled that price. He paid that price. And what God calls for us to do is simply follow after Jesus to believe that he came and is the only way, the only truth, the only life that we can endure for eternity. And so if that's you today and you're challenged by that, you're struggling with these realities, I would encourage you to stop and consider the abundance of God's love. Not because He had to, but because it's who He is. And that you would decide today to commit your life to Christ and follow after Him. Father, we pray for those who are wrestling with these things. God, I pray that you would challenge each one of us and that we would leave here with a new definition of what love is. That we would choose to love the people around us not out of a sense of worth or out of a sense of because we like who they are, but simply because you chose to love us. That we would abide in you each step of the way. We pray this in Jesus' name.